No one will miss it. You'll know when he shows up. It will be as dramatic as a lightning flash across the sky. And he wants them to know this. For just verse 27, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. No one will need to have to search around and wonder when he shows up. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Christ's Return to Earth. As Pastor Carl continues his sermon, we will see that Christ's return will also come with great power. Matthew chapter 24 verse 27 says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. No one will be able to miss the return of Jesus. His return will be sudden and startling, just as is lightning. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. But Jesus was clear. His second coming cannot happen until the Jewish people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Jesus came in the name of Yahweh until they recognize that his second coming cannot take place. So that's the first question. And the second question logically follows. And what will be the sign of your coming? They're asking him, when will your enemies be crushed where you come and rule and reign in power and authority as the Old Testament prophets spoke of you? And so what does Jesus do? He looks down the corridors of time and he gives them a picture of what's going to precede his literal return to the earth. A number of signs, and we studied them very carefully in verses 4 through 14. Jesus calls them birth pangs. And they match the sealed judgment. Sometimes Christians almost sloppily say, well, we're seeing the birth pangs today. We are not. Jesus is clear, and you know it as you let Scripture interpret Scripture, that what we're seeing today are not the birth pangs. Now, what we're seeing today is important. Why is it important? Because to have birth pangs... For a woman to go in labor, you have to have a pregnancy. <laughs> and so the, the pregnancy is here. In fact, I think it's almost full term. But Jesus is clear in verse 8 that what unfolds in the first half of the tribulation is only the beginning of the birth pangs. And so we studied some of these. Now, some people say, well, we've always had earthquakes and we've always had famines and maybe we just have better technology. And we Look, that, that kind of statement is ignorant. Why is it ignorant? Because it fails to acknowledge that we are living in a time in human history that is distinctly different from 100 years ago. Israel is in the land. And God makes it clear that at the end of the age, because these prophecies that we're studying this morning cannot happen until Israel is in the land. And now, after 1,900 years, God has established the nation of Israel as he said he would in a single day. He'd make them a nation. And he's gathering them from across the planet. That's the difference. 
And so if you look at Matthew 24 and you look at Revelation chapter 6 and 7, there's false Christ. That's the first horse of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He comes on a white horse mimicking Christ. There's wars. That's the second horse. The red horse. There's famines. That's the third horse. The black horse. There's death. That's the pale horse of death. There's martyrs. And so the fifth seal, you see these martyrs who are under the altar. Then the sixth seal speaks of these causes changes, and though Matthew doesn't focus on them because he wants to focus on the very end cosmic changes, Luke does of these cosmic changes that will happen in the heavens. And then John, through the worldwide preaching of the gospel in Revelation 7, describes what Jesus describes in Matthew 24, 14 at the end of the field seal judgments. Remember, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall go to the whole world, and then the end shall come. When will that happen? During the time of the great tribulation. And so that's the seal judgments. That's the first half of the tribulation. Then again, there's this event that happens in the middle, this game changer, when the Antichrist now wants exclusive worship and he commits the abomination of desolation. Verse 16, then those who are in Judea, when they see this event, this is how you should respond. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The warning continues, verse 17. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get his things uh, out, of the, out that are in the house. You go to Israel today. To this day, they still have flat rooftops, just like they did in the first century. Don't go up on the housetop. Flee, run. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. So when the temple is desecrated, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee, run to the wilderness. And that's important, and we're going to see in just a moment why this is critically important as it relates especially to the Jewish people. This, by the way, will be a mark of conversion for many. They will basically be saying, you know, this is what Jesus said for us to do, and as his people, we're going to obey. And for others, it will be an evidence that Jesus is indeed the prophet. Remember in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, there's coming one who's like me, he's the prophet. And so in the New Testament, are you the prophet? In the day of Pentecost, Peter declares he is the prophet. See, there's a prophet who would be no ordinary prophet. He'd be prophet of prophets because he would be the Messiah where God would take on human flesh. He would be God in human flesh. He would be the prophet of all prophets. And so they're going to be reading this, some Jews, and they're going to say, wow, he did what Moses said is necessary. He told a short-range prophecy proving that you can trust all his long-term prophecies. Now, understand Notice in verse 15, I skipped over it. In parentheses, it says, let the reader understand. More literally, the text reads, whoever is reading this, let him understand. So God is writing this, not just for the church to study, but in this future day, the Jewish people are going to be pouring over sections of Scripture like the Olivet Discourse. And by the way, what Jesus is teaching, Matthew reminds us that this is going to happen at the end of time. So look at verse 21. He begins the verse with the little three-letter word for. It means, in other words, let me explain. Let me explain why you need to flee and run. For at this time, there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place since the beginning of the world until now and never will again. 
So there's a sense of urgency here. When the abomination of desolation takes place, run. Why? Because the nature of the tribulation period is going to drastically change. Now, there are some Christians, they're very much a minority. They hold to a mid-tribulational viewpoint. They think that it is at this point that the church is raptured. And what they fail to see is that the first half of the tribulation period is also a time of tribulation. That's how it's described in Revelation 6. It's called the wrath of the Lamb. The only difference is it goes from a time of tribulation to great tribulation. It intensifies. God is trying to use the seal judgments of the first half of the tribulation to get the attentions of the people of this world that they might repent and believe. But once the abomination of desolation takes place, what was merely birth pangs now changes into full labor. Here's a picture again I've given you uh, of the relationship between the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. There are seven seals, and if you remember, you can only break one seal at a time. You can't take the seal scroll and see all seals at once. You can only see one at a time, and they're broken one at a time by the Lamb of God who's worthy to break it, John says. But when you open up the seventh seal, you're able to see seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowl judgments. Someone asked me, does this mean that the people in heaven are looking down upon the earth and watching? No. You know, sometimes people take that verse out of context in Hebrews 12, and we have this great cloud of witnesses, you know, and grandma's up there and saying, you know, grandson, you need to get right. If I was there, I'd give you a whooping. You know, that would make, I suppose, heaven like hell if we were able to see. But what they are able to see, and by the way, the great cloud of witnesses contextually are all the folks in chapter 11, those great men and women of faith who gave us an example to follow. But what they can see is the nature of the judgments. And when they see it, the Bible says there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. It's just like their breath is taken away. And so Jesus says in verse 22, unless those days were limited or cut short, no one would survive. But those days will be limited because of the elect. And so what I want you to say this morning, that's all by way of setting. Are you with me? Say amen. All right. Now, there are three truths that I want us to get concerning Christ's return to the earth. Three critical truths I want to register this morning in our thinking. First, there on your outline, there's a note-taking outline if you're new. You can print it out online if you're live streaming. Christ's return will come with increasing deception. It will come with increasing deception. Verse 23, we read, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Uh, Times are bad in the sealed judgments, but the trumpet judgments, people are desperately looking for answers. Maybe they've rationalized up until this time, well, this is due to climate change or this or that, but there's no rationalization anymore. The thing has changed so dramatically. And of course, with that change, the false prophets are going to change dramatically. Why? Because by this time, for the most part, the Jews have rejected the Antichrist. And they've embraced Jesus as Lord. And because Satan hates the Jews, he's going to go after the Jews, and he's going to increase the great deception. And by the way, as we move towards the end of the age, deception increases. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 that in latter times, men will depart from the faith. I never would have imagined, having gone into the ministry some 40 years ago, 1978, 
that I would ever have seen so many evangelicals, so to speak, defect from the Christian faith. Pastors, music leaders, theologians turn from the faith. But God says that's a mark not of simply the last days, but the latter times, the very end of the age. Well, you're at the very end, and, and so we need to be alert. Again, this, there's timeless lessons for us today. John said in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How do you test the spirits? By knowing the book. And therein lies the problem today. People don't know the book. Pastors aren't teaching the word of God. They get these little 20-minute sermonettes and you preach for an hour and people are coming unglued. That's sad. That's the pathetic state of the church today. They can watch their Clemson USC ball game for three hours, but they can't listen to a sermon for an hour. And one of the marks of the end of the age is great, great deception. And it will come through Satan, his false prophet, and a multiplicity of false prophets that the Antichrist will help raise up. And so people professing to be the Messiah will come along and they'll be trying to draw the Jews out of the wilderness. Remember, they've done what Jesus said, flee into the wilderness. So when you're in the wilderness, don't miss the fact that these who say, oh, Jesus is back, don't be deceived. Listen, verse 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. So is to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, the way it's structured grammatically, it's not possible. In fact, more literally, it reads, if it were possible, he would deceive the elect. That doesn't mean that people can't be deceived. But you can't be deceived as one of the elect, and the elect are the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. But you cannot be deceived as one of the elect in terms of renouncing salvation. But in this context, you can be deceived in thinking, oh, Jesus is back. Look, there's someone out there, and he's doing great signs and wonders, and he says, I'm the Messiah. It must be him. And Satan has incredible persuasive powers where you get to believe that white is black, that up is down, that evil is good, that good is evil. He reverses things. And because God loves people, even when the evil one is working over time, God will respond with his own uh, countermeasure. Right out next to this verse, Revelation 14, 6 through 10. Put that in the margin. Revelation 14, 6 through 10. As you're jotting down that, let me read it to you. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And another angel, a second one followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, and the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So Satan is working overtime, and God is working overtime through these three angels for the first time ever in the history of the world. God is going to preach the plan of salvation through an angel, and he'll send these other angels warning them of the consequences if you ignore the gospel that God wants you to believe. 
Now remember, these who have fled to the mountains are saved people. You see it by their deeds. Faith without works is dead. And so the evil one is going to try to lure the Jews out. Why? Because he hates the Jews. There's no explanation for the hatred of the Jews except Satan is behind it. So these false Christ, false prophets will come to mislead, if possible, even the elect. You say, well, he couldn't mislead me. Listen, the only way you can't, the only reason you can't be misled today is because you have the supernatural presence of God, the Holy Spirit in your life. And he is sealed in you for the day of redemption. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us shows they were never really of us to begin with. If you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never had it. But that doesn't mean that Satan can't knock you off kilter and do some turmoil in your life. While you will not renounce him, you can fall prey to these great signs and wonders that will come upon the world. Look at verse 25. Behold, I've told you in advance... So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe him. Jesus is saying such talk is an absolute lie, so do not believe it. Now, there will be great encouragement in that day when the people of God, the Jewish people, are pouring over these scriptures And they're going to say, some of them, how did we miss it? They're not converted when they see Jesus. That's a gross abuse of the prophet Zechariah when they look on him whom they have pierced. They will mourn. That's not when they're converted. They're converted before that. But when they see Jesus, their hearts will be broken. He is the one we rejected, as will the hearts of millions of Gentiles who are converted. So Jesus, again, wants to prepare them, and he wants to prepare them by reminding them that his coming will come with great deception. That's the first point. Secondly, they're on the outline. Not only will his second coming come with increasing deception, Christ's return from heaven will come with great power, with great power. Let's read now verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. No one, and I mean no one, will be able to miss the return of Jesus. His coming will be sudden, it will be startling, it will be visible, just as lightning flashes. He wants them to know that these false prophets, these false Christ, oh, he's out there in the wilderness. Oh, no, he's over here in this inner room. You know, you need to go see Jesus. No one will miss it. You'll know when he shows up. It will be as dramatic as a lightning flash across the sky. And he wants them to know this for just verse 27. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. No one will need to have to search around and wonder when he shows up. Now his first coming, he came in humility to die. But when he comes the second time, he's coming to rule and to reign. He's coming with power and with judgment. At the rapture, he'll take us up in the twinkling of an eye. But at the second coming to the earth, the second part of his return program, every eye will see him. The scripture is clear. Turn to Revelation chapter 19 for just a moment. Hold your finger here. Fast forward to Revelation chapter 19. John gives us some more details about the return of the Lord Jesus from heaven that I want you to see. It'll be worth turning there. Revelation 19 and verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. 
By the way, just as there are people who say that Jesus did not literally, physically, actually, bodily rise from the dead. We had a preacher over in Hilton Head who said that a few years ago. On Easter, his resurrection message was, Jesus is raised up in our hearts. A spiritual resurrection. Anyone who denies the bodily resurrection of Christ is a false teacher, a false prophet, and you should run in the opposite direction. And there are many across our nation. Even so, there are people who say that Jesus is not literally going to come again. Some liberals say, well, he's going to come and that his, his people will make the society more Christianized. Well, I don't think we're doing too well. Hmm. Things don't seem to be getting more Christianized. In fact, Jesus said they're going to get worse. That's all maybe 30 years ago. And then there are some amillennialists who look at the book of Revelation in two ways. They're called preterists. If you are with me for my series on the Revelation, remember in the opening uh, message, I dealt with four approaches to the book of Revelation, and one is called preterism. Preter is a Latin word that means past. And so a partial preterist, like an R.C. Sproul, would say, well, all of Revelation is history with the exception of the second coming. And they would say the same with the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the Olivet Discourse. It's all history, Vadi Bakum teaches the same thing. That's, that's just wrong. That's dangerous. You have to spiritualize the Holy Scripture to come to that conclusion. So for the preterists, they just say there's one big event that's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. He'll take us all to heaven. He'll send all the rest to hell. One big judgment, and that's the end. Oh, no, no, no. We're actually going to study before we're done in this series, by God's grace, four different judgments that are still in the future. And so, no, the scripture is clear that Jesus will literally, physically, bodily, and then there are full preterists. I, I, I scratch my head and think, I don't even know. I, don't, I wonder if they're saved. <laughs> they, they say that Jesus has already come back. The second coming has already happened. As one dear family called me this week because their son had embraced that, their adult son. I said, that's just heresy. That's just heresy. Jesus hadn't come back yet. You cannot read the plain text of Scripture and come to that conclusion. Do you remember there in the Mount of Olives? Jesus is telling his men to wait until the Spirit of God comes because you can't serve until you're indwelt. And that's going to happen on Pentecost, this Old Testament feast that is going to be fulfilled literally. And they watch him ascend into heaven, like watching a balloon go up, and you keep watching. I still see it. You see it. I see it. I see it. I see it. I'm Men of Galilee, two angels say, why do, you look standing, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Jesus went away literally, actually, bodily, visibly. And the Bible teaches he will come back literally, actually, bodily, visibly. And this is why it's important you know your Bible. Because you have people today who are using the language of historic Christianity, but a different dictionary in terms of how to define it. John has already stated in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. He's quoting the prophet Daniel. And every eye will see him. Even those who have pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Further reading into verse 11 here. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white 
horse. Now, it was customary for a triumphant Roman general, when he defeated his enemy, to come back from the battle, and he would mount onto a beautiful white stallion. And so Julius Caesar, after he conquered North Africa, comes back on a white stallion with the prisoners and all the spoils of war behind them. The imagery was clear to any first century reader. Well, this is not symbolic. This is a real horse. Jesus is coming back on a real white horse. I was witnessing in uh, New York City uh, in the airport waiting for a flight. It was way overdue going to Israel one time. And and I was speaking to this Orthodox Jew, and we were talking about the Messiah's return. He said, well, we believe he's coming back on a white horse. I said, you do? I said, that's what the Revelation teaches. He's coming back literally on a white horse. Why? Because it is a picture of a sovereign, triumphant Lord who is coming coming back. Look, when he came the first time and he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he came down that hill on a lowly donkey, but not on this day. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse and he who sat on it who's called faithful and true. This is very different from Satan and all his evil compatriots who are nothing but liars and deceivers. He is faithful and true. And notice, and in righteousness, he judges and wages war. He comes as a conquering general, and he will judge. Look, the world rejected him at his first coming, and most of the people, sadly, of this world are still on the broad road that leads to destruction. And when he comes at his second coming, sadly, most of the people will still be on that broad road. He came the first time as a helpless babe, but he is coming back as a conquering king. Men abuse him, they mock him, they make fun of him, they use his name in vain. Not on this day. And there'll be no mercy on this day. The time will have expired. The mercy of God will have given over to his wrath. Notice how verse 12 begins. His eyes are a flame of fire. Perfect vision. It's an imagery that's already been used in Revelation chapter 1 and again in the second chapter. Nothing escapes his notice. He can't be fooled. He is incapable of doing anything but fair and righteous judgment. He will be able to see every deed, thought, and word that we have spoken that is wrong and evil. Nothing will escape his notice. No one will be able to escape and say, I didn't know. His eyes are a flame of fire. Notice, and on his head are many diadems. Now again, when a Roman general would conquer the enemy, one of the things they would do, and if there were several kings involved, they'd literally stack them. They'd put the diadems on top of their head. You see King David doing this in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He, he conquers the Amorite king. What, is the, what do they do? They put the diadem on his head. Now, we'll study it next time. You don't want to miss it. But there's a battle that is going to end also at this time, and it's a battle where all the armies of the world come against Israel because they hate Israel. And Christ comes back as a sovereign king pictured here wearing the diadems of this world. He is king of kings and lord of lords and he has a name written on him, notice, which no one knows except himself. 
a name that no one knows except himself. I have over 50 commentaries on the Revelation. In fact, I wrote my own commentary on the Revelation. I've never published it, but I have it written. I've got like 15 commentaries done. But I'm so sick to death of these Christian book companies and all their compromise, and all they're interested in is making money, and they'll compromise sound theology at the price of doing it. Lay that aside, what's interesting to me is all the commentaries that say what it is that's written on him. <laughs> the text says he has a name that no one knows except himself. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 021. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.